It's Monday, August 17, 2020, just after market close in New York. This is the Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington in New York. Ed Harrison is on vacation. I'm joined shortly by Max Weefy. But first, with the day's stories, Jack Farley. Thanks, Ash. Japan's GDP plummeted by 7.8% last quarter. Annualized, this comes out to a 27.8% drop. This is the biggest decline since the beginning of the data set. The New York Fed didn't have great news either. Its Empire Manufacturing Survey came in at just 3.7, well below the 15 flat expected by economists. The one saving grace in the data releases today is the National Association of Home Builders Market Index, which stands at 78, matching the record of December 1998. Demand for new homes is robust. This rosy headline picture is getting talked about a lot, but one data set that's not getting as much buzz is the mortgage delinquency rate from the Mortgage Bankers Association, which now stands at 8.22%, nearing the highs seen during the financial crisis. What's even more remarkable is that the foreclosure rate continues to decline. It's indicative of the federal moratorium on foreclosures. The thing is that the delinquency rate and the foreclosure rate normally move together, they're correlated. And this makes sense because the foreclosure rate is basically a derivative of the delinquency rate. But that has changed. Foreclosures have stalled even as delinquencies approach 2010 levels. The moratorium on foreclosures keeps on getting rolled over. The current deadline is August 31st. And lastly, it's Precious Metals Week. Today on Real Vision, Lynn Alden spoke to Ron William. It was nice to pair Lynn's macro insights with Ron's technical expertise. A lot of charts, so check that one out for sure. Tomorrow, Ed's going to be speaking to Peter Cicchini. Stay tuned for that. And then on Wednesday, Raul's going to be speaking to James Rasta about investing in mining stocks. We could not have picked a better time to start this campaign with a bombshell coming out last Friday that Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway bought over half a billion dollars worth of Barrick Gold Corp, the largest precious metal miner in North America. This is really important, as Warren Buffett has been a skeptic of gold for the bulk of his career. Barrick shot up after hours on Friday, and it continued its rally into this morning. Other large-cap golding mining stocks quickly followed suit. And it's not just the underlining price that spiked, but the implied volatility, too. You see, this is a very dramatic time for gold. You had the epic rally over the past few months. Then, last Tuesday was one of the biggest sell-offs ever. And then on Friday, Warren Buffett buys Barrick Gold. So the dominoes really are lining up, and that's why we hope you join us this week as we dive deep into precious metals. And with that, let's go over to Ash and Max. Thanks, Jack. Welcome back, Max. Thanks, Ash. Good to be back. Looks like you're in the office. Yeah, I am in the office. And we got an interesting package today from a subscriber. Uh, I'm not going to, to give away too much as Ed is on vacation, and it is for both you and Ed. But to that subscriber who sent you guys a gift, uh, thank you so much. And, and maybe you'll see it on screen in, in a few weeks. Perfect. What's the subscriber's name? Oh my gosh, what did I, I just had it? Um, let's see here. I've got James, James D. We'll call him James Dean. Uh, James D. All right. Yeah, James D. Sounds good. So, Max, what are you looking at uh, this afternoon? Well, I think uh, Jack was really touching on some important topics on the intro section, looking at housing and then as well what uh, you know Mr. Buffett did, or at least uh, was reported on Friday with him buying Barrick Gold. Um, and I think it's just important to to dive a little bit deeper into what's happening there. I think the housing numbers, you know, there's a good narrative behind people moving out of the cities and into the suburbs and why that you might see some some stronger numbers out of housing and, and the unique nature of the crisis and that we're all trapped in our homes and people are rethinking, is this where I want to be? I'm spending more of my time than ever in this place, and it's probably going to be that way for a long time. 
so, you know, it doesn't surprise me to see some strength out of the housing market. And then as well with Barrick Gold, you know, Barrick Gold is a stock. It's, a, it's an equity. It, it produces cash flow. Buffett's remarks about gold being a pet rock and having no place in a portfolio, I don't think really apply to Barrick Gold. They're still, you know, they're pulling something out of the ground and they're making money on it. So I, I look at it that way. It's the same thing as maybe buying stock in Philip Morris. Uh, I don't have to smoke cigarettes to buy Philip Morris. And, and Warren Buffett buying Barrick Gold is not an endorsement fully of gold from Warren. Uh, so you know, if he were buying bullion or he came out and said, I'm buying bullion, uh, that would be a completely different story. But as of right now, I look at it as Warren Buffett doing what he does. It's buying valuable companies that he thinks are either cheap or have a good opportunity to grow. Yeah, and also very kind of Mr. Buffett to coincide his purchase with Precious Metals Week here at Rovision. I know. You really couldn't ask for much more. And, and we, uh, we had a little pullback last week. Uh, we found some it's, – it's been you know, a short period of time, but it looks like we may have found some support with uh, today's price action. So we'll see whether that resumes this week. I think there's going to be a lot of tell uh, coming from the price action as we move through the week. Yeah. Let's jump back to something you mentioned earlier. You're talking about the strength in uh, in home builders, National Association of Home Builders Index out today, uh, 78, tying an all-time high set in 1998. So this isn't just a relatively strong performance. This is extraordinarily strong sentiment coming out of home builders. You alluded to something, Max, which I think was spot on, the peculiar nature of the crisis, the notion that people are trapped in their homes and moving. I guess my question to you is, in what way is this... Uh, indicative or suggestive of anything at all in the broader economy, except for this very isolated uh, circumstance that we're looking at here. Well, I mean, it's still, it still holds a little bit of water. It's important to think about. Um, I mean, if people had no money to move, they wouldn't be doing something with it. But I think it says more about what people are doing with their money than it does that there is, you know, that everything is fine. So that, that's how I view it through that lens. It's just a, it's more about what people are doing rather than if they have anything to spend. Yeah, you know, talking about the bizarre nature of the circumstances that we find ourselves in, one of the analysts reported that a potential headwind uh, against housing uh, is lumber prices are rising due to mills being shut uh, in the prior two months. So this is an incredibly weird environment. You you see basically these changing patterns of consumption. You see changing patterns of supply, and uh, it's just a weird market. And you wonder really what the broader lessons, if any, can be drawn from this. Yeah, well, you know, they say the cure for high prices is high prices. So we'll see what happens with the with the lumber market. We've had um, actually uh, Michael Guyad last week. He talks about lumber all the time. So he he touches on uh, those sort of skyrocketing lumber futures prices in that piece from last week. He probably has more to say on it than I do. It's not something I follow particularly closely. But yeah, following lumber, copper is important to see whether uh, kind of having confirming indicators. So what you're seeing from home builders being confirmed by what you're seeing from lumber, being confirmed by what you're seeing from you know Dr. Copper. That's where you want to go to to see whether this is just a unique thing or or whether it's being confirmed by multiple indicators. Well, look, here's a counter case: Empire State Manufacturing Index out today. Uh, prior report, 17.2. Consensus was 17, so right in line. Consensus with prior. Uh, consensus range, 15 to 20. Actual print, 3.7. See, that's that's actually an indicator that I, I don't know too much about. I would love to get your take on you know, what that means, what is the you know, historical range for it, and, and who are they talking to? 
Well, you know, zero represents an even break. So it's basically negative numbers, negative prints or contraction, positive numbers or expansion. So this shows weak expansion. Uh, you know, look, I think that uh, one of the key reasons that we look at manufacturers indices in general is because manufacturer tends to be a, a swing indicator about the economy. So when uh, you see uh, a change in sentiment, when you see a change uh, in pro productive capacity, it's usually reflected uh, in the manufacturing numbers because that's where the that's where the incremental change occurs. So it's something that we watch closely. At very least, even at a even at a fifty thousand foot level, you could say these numbers are moving starkly in opposite directions. Just again, another another metric of the bizarre changes we see to the structure of the economy around COVID. And again, my question: What does it mean? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, that we've been getting conflicting prints, and I certainly am not the one to say what it means for the manufacturing index. But as I said, it's it's taking that sort of uh, mosaic approach, or where you are, are taking all the pieces, putting them together to come up with a view, and you have to square what is strong housing numbers with weaker manufacturing numbers. And in my mind, uh, it comes down to that sort of narrative on on what's important. It's not that there is abundance everywhere. It's that in this period of contraction, where are people going? Where is money being spent? Yeah. You know, it's also interesting to think about people fleeing uh, cities to the suburbs, which wouldn't be a bullish indicator, I wouldn't think, in the, in the longer term. It's, it suggests a durable sentiment uh, of people wanting to flee to the safety of the woods. Uh, James Altucher, uh, the blogger, has written a piece that's gotten tremendous buzz uh, around New York over the weekend about how this time is different. New York is dead. Um, you know, I'm not sure what the uh, recovery looks like, but it's hard to see New York coming back. You walk around the same streets that I do. It doesn't feel like it did uh, in February. It doesn't feel like it did uh, a year ago. There's definitely a change here. And there's at least a sentiment feeling, a sentiment push that things are moving to the downside, to the negative and increasing lack of desire to be where we are right now. So I guess that comes down to what is dead and how long does it take to turn around? The counterpoint to your to your point is uh, I forget the person on Twitter. I, if anybody really wants to know, I'll post it in the comments. But it was a tweet about a guy who moved here in the late 70s, early 80s, when the same sorts of conversations about New York being dead. I know you and uh, you know there was sort of a, a fiscal cliff here in the city. Um, crime was at all time highs. There was trash on the streets. Um, but what happened? Artists moved in. Uh, little shops, restaurants, those started to to boom, and it took a long time time for us to to become the New York City that we know now. But you could say that part of that boom that came in the 90s and 2000s came from from what was built out by by this period of time where it was actually affordable for culture to grow and for things to come back. You know, Facebook just signed a, a huge lease here. So they're making the bet that urban centers are going to return. And, you know, I'm sure they got a pretty good deal on that lease. I don't know the terms, but uh, or I, I forget the exact building, but it was a sizable building um, that they just signed with. So I guess, you know, it takes a long time for these sorts of things to be undone. And uh, I, I am not yet ready to call for for the death of New York City. Hey, listen, it's a good point. And uh, they were fun times if you were young and an artist and wanted to be here. Flip side, I'm going to quote a number from memory without having it in front of me, which is always dangerous. But I believe that homicides in New York City peaked around 1,000 in 1990. The point of the matter is it was a very long climb back before people felt safe on the streets again. Yes. Yeah, that is true. And, and I'm not trying to downplay that. If if you're young and stupid like me and you're willing to uh, to put up with some of that to get, you know, good dim sum, 
it's good for you. If you are, uh, if you miss your, your nice Upper East Side neighborhood with all the same restaurants and shops and, uh, you know, ladies walking their poodles might not be the time for New York. I may be joining Tyler Neville in Austin. Yeah, I, I know the feeling. <laughs> so look, the story today that, that also caught my attention, Goldman Sachs raising their target on the S&P 500 by 20% from 3000 to 3600 Pretty big story. Yeah, it is a pretty big story. And actually, I saw a tweet from, from Mike Green over the weekend looking at it, and he put it side by side with their call from March that equities might not bottom until 2000. And, and uh, until below 2000. And, and his, his tweet, that his commentary that he added to this was, uh, there's nothing to change sentiment like price. Uh, so I think that's a little bit of what we're seeing is, is the way that price can change sentiment. Now, that doesn't mean they're not wrong, but it, it clearly shows the, the disconnect between prices and underlying macro fundamentals. Um, but there's many more things that drive markets besides fundamentals. So that doesn't mean uh, Goldman will be wrong. Yeah, look, here's the quote coming out of the report. Looking forward to falling equity risk premium will outweigh a rise in bond yields and combined with our above consensus EPS forecast, we'll lift the S&P 500 index to 3,600 by year's end. You know, talking about comparing it on a relative basis to bond yields, it, it's, it sounds like it's monetary policy, it's fiscal policy piling in that's changing the sentiment on this. Look, we're now at the close of the day, 3381 on the S&P 500. That's a hair's breadth off the intraday highs set in February pre-COVID, 3393 on 19 February 2020. You have to look at these numbers and ask yourself, even if you're not an alarmist, not saying the sky is falling, not saying the world is falling apart. Really, you know, equity markets are, are pricing future earnings uh, of, uh, in this case, the S&P 500 uh, as a basket, you have to ask yourself, really, do you feel that you're as optimistic as you were if you assumed that things were priced to perfection in February at all-time highs? Yeah, and, and really just doing the you know the simple math on that number, where we were at 3,380 to, to 3,600, what, that's it's less than 10%, right? So it's it's not like they're saying we're going to get another thirty percent before before the year is over, uh, dispersed over a couple of months. It's what less than three percent a month. It's not unheard of. It would be quite the run considering what's happened this year, but uh, it's by no means out of the question. Yeah, and certainly I'm not saying that markets might not have room to run. I guess I just think about this. I worry about retail investors who are out there who are probably concentrated, who are probably not hedged, uh, who are probably not doing risk management. They're making momentum bets, and I just worry about the pain that people might experience. Yeah, I, and I, I'm with you there. Uh, I was actually talking to Tyler today, and we were discussing, you know, is this a mania? Are we there yet? Uh, his, his take was no, and, and I tend to agree with him. Yeah, people are getting more involved in investing, but there's more information out there. It's easier than ever. Uh, it's one thing to get a stock tip from your landscaper. It's when your landscaper fires you and says, I'm not a landscaper anymore. I'm an investor. That's that's the new uh, mania bar that that I think is going to be set. Um, and it's it might go a little bit further this time. And partially because we've had this big crash before, it feels even more ridiculous. But I don't think we're I don't think we're there yet. I, I don't feel full mania. And there's a lot of we haven't I don't think I've seen enough capitulation from the professionals who have been cautious about this rally uh, to to fully say that we're at the end of our rope. 
I kind of wonder, you know, it's like the old joke that uh, a guy has delusions of adequacy. I mean, I, I wonder if, if the market may have delusions of adequacy pricing things basically at par from where we were pre-COVID, which isn't to say that markets could run, couldn't run higher. The cynic in me wants to say S&P 4000, sure, why not? More stimulus, more central bank activity? Sure, I can believe that. But at the same time, there really is a feeling that things are starting to get out of step or continuing to stay out of step with the reality on the ground. Yeah, the question is just how long can it go on? And is there a new paradigm? Uh, I generally don't think that you know things are different this time. Uh, but that's I'm still waiting for that narrative. I'm still waiting for the it's different. Everyone was wrong. Uh, sort of, you know, table pounding, chest banging. We aren't quite there yet. People are still cautious that uh, there is you know, more turbulence to come. And just from a sentiment perspective, I haven't seen enough uh, you know, subtweeting of people's bad calls from March and April yet uh, from the proud bulls to, to really say that, that we've reached that sort of peak, uh, I told you so moment. So, so Max, let me play devil's advocate. Where's the, where's the evidence that there is pricing for turbulence ahead? Where's the evidence that there's pricing for turbulence? Uh, I don't think there is evidence that there's pricing for turbulence. Uh, I mean, like put calls are are still low, uh, but you could argue that that is uh, just people playing catch up. Um, I'm more talking about sentiment. I'm not talking about about pricing here. Okay. Yeah. Look, and here's a here's a counterindicator. Last uh, of what I was just saying. So last week, economic highlights: retail sales rose 1.2 percent. Uh, third month in a row. Uh, initial jobless claims fell below a million, barely, but below a million, ending 20 weeks in a row of uh, over a million initial claims. Continuing claims still above 15 million, which is certainly ugly, but they peaked at a hair's breadth beneath 25 million uh, earlier in the COVID crisis. So we're seeing incremental improvement. I guess my question is incremental improvement off what dismal, horrific base? Yeah. And Ash, I actually kind of just picked up on what I think you were trying to do, which was switch into different asset classes that seem to be uh, the narrative around them is that they're places to be when things get rocky. They're they're counter cyclical and they're also, um, you know, safe haven assets. Uh, so, you know, Bitcoin, this run in Bitcoin, this run in gold and silver, I guess, could be an example of uh, people, you know, pricing things for uh, for potential turmoil. But you know, my my counter argument to that too would be that gold and Bitcoin and and silver. Um, and I'm saying this is somebody who is fully long gold and silver. The only thing in my portfolio that I'm fully long in, and it's it's all I own. But it can be driven by speculative fervor. It can be driven by central bank liquidity. If you're saying that stocks are only up because there's money flowing in because the Fed is printing, why is gold and silver, you know, not uh, not involved in that same sort of dynamic? And I guess. Uh, the question is, are people buying gold because they think it's going to be worth $3,000 an ounce and it's going to plateau up there and it will never be worth less than $3,000 an ounce again? That sort of you know macro value play that gold is, is underpriced. Or are they traders? Are they hodlers of gold, You know, thinking that it's, it's something that they should just DCA into all the time? Um, or do they think it's going to you know, have a stop at 3000 before it returns to its uh, eventual equilibrium level. Um, and I think that that's important to, to discuss, especially as we do this precious metals week here on Real Vision. 
that yeah. you know the same sorts of speculative fervor that we talk about um, oftentimes making their way into the equity markets, uh, although it's not nearly as common that that gold and silver and and precious metals find their way into that, it's still just as possible. Yeah, we talked a little bit about this earlier. So why not? And I, I guess the the devil's advocate argument of why not is there's not a yield on it, right? Yeah, there, there's no yield. Uh, you could argue that what central banks are doing and the macro environment is the fundamentals. But yeah, there, there's no yield. There's no free cash flow. There's no business model. It is 100% a psychological asset. Uh, now, there's 6,000 years of psychology and uh, you know plenty of, of reason to believe that that's not going to change. But you know, I had a conversation today with somebody on on the plus tier who who was talking about the traditional buyers are stepping away, and the more speculative interests who are in it for price appreciation in the short term are stepping up. Now, how much more speculative interest can come in? Will it eventually move the price enough so that those other buyers step back in and they realize, you know, central banks uh, and whatnot step back in because they realize that it has plateaued, it has gone up. I don't know, but they aren't buying in the same way they were, you know, a few few months ago. And and the people who are stepping in are not the traditional gold bulls. Um, and you know, as I said, I don't think Warren Buffett's overall take on gold has fully changed. But he, we're all opportunists. Yes, uh, as investors, that is always the case. You know. Also, I was looking at some overseas uh, summaries uh, earlier in the day. You know, Europe obviously imposing new lockdowns, GDP. From the UK, 20% negative. That's quarter on quarter. That's not an annualized rate. Um, France today announced that they are deploying riot police to enforce mask wearing all over the country. Uh, you know, even if the guy in body armor uh, speaks to you really politely and tells you to put your mask back on, that can't be a good feeling in terms of sentiment in the country. Um, and I saw an interesting uh, note from uh, Nikkei. Uh, that Japanese listed companies' earnings expected to plunge 36% year on year in fiscal 2020. Yeah, the the sort of U.S. is the is the underperformer story seems to be having some conflicting evidence coming out slowly. Um, that is pretty pretty terrible numbers from the U.K. and as well from Japan. Uh, more of a sentiment indicator um, in France, but it, it could be indicative of what's in store for the, the rest of the world um, and that that it just really hasn't caught back up here in, in the US. But uh, yeah, that, that's certainly not positive overall for the global economy. All right, I'm going to keep going with the, uh, with the headwinds here. So I was reading uh, a report from uh, the uh, T. Rowe Price chief economist today estimating that the expiration of the CARES Act on July 31st uh, could cause a contraction in personal income expenditures of minus 4.5% consumer spending decline based on the expiration of the CARES Act and the fact that there is currently no end in sight uh, to getting that reinstated. Congress has adjourned for the summer. Mitch McConnell says the Senate will come back if there's an agreement. Um, the consensus wisdom is don't hold your breath. Yeah, and uh, I was pretty wrong on that. You know, I was I was fairly confident that something would happen because of the political consequences, and something did happen. It was just an executive order. So, is there any possibility of any of the actions from the executive order going through? I haven't been following that uh, nearly as closely. 
Yeah, you know, my sense was that what I, I'm obviously not a lawyer, the analysis that I was reading said that it was constitutionally dubious uh, and that the, uh, the that, that you know, the sure bet to get it done is to have the branch of government that has the power of the purse, Congress rightfully passed these appropriations. The question of whether or not uh, it will be upheld in the courts, uh, you know, again, more risk, more risk on the table. Yeah, I mean, executive orders have, you know, legally dubious grounding as it is. And we've haven't declared war, but we've certainly uh, gone to war without Congress's official approval. So, uh, yeah. But this is, you know, this really is the carve out, right? If you think about appropriations, if you think of budgetary uh, approval, this really is Congress's bailiwick. This is the one thing that they unquestionably have the constitutional uh, power to do. And so an executive order uh, that is potentially contravening hundreds of years of policy precedent uh, and legal precedent, you know, I, I just don't know how that shakes out. Yeah. Well, I guess, as I said, there are plenty of executive orders over the years that have uh, evoked just as much, you know, this is Congress's role and we now don't bat an eye at them or they're, you know, commonplace. So we'll see whether this is one of those things and potentially the uh, degradation point for, you know, the checks and balances that have been set up by the U.S. Constitution. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And, and and every time you we hit one of those yellow lights and then blew through it, it probably felt the same way. Just the same, all things being equal, on the other side of the coin, it still seems like additional risk. Yeah, yeah. I'm not I'm not at all trying to say that it's it's you know set in stone, but I thought it was uh especially considering I think our last conversation we were discussing that so so uh, thoroughly, it, w- it would be important to, to bring that new twist in that I don't think either of us had predicted. And then as well, the staunch um, pushback from the Democrats on what seemingly is what they wanted. Um, so I-, I just thought that that was interesting political posturing that originally it was all on the Dem side. It was all about getting a deal done, getting something out there. We need to help the people. Uh, president steps up. uh puts through an executive order and then, whoa, not so fast. You know, we want it at all costs, but these costs are too much. So uh, I just thought that that was a, an interesting twist that I don't think anyone predicted. Yeah. And and also the one thing that everyone should have predicted is where the blame was going to go. It's that way, right? Yes. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's extraordinary to just, it's like we live in two totally different universes, right? It's all Nancy Pelosi's fault. It's all Mitch McConnell's fault. You will hear the same explanation from two different people with two different parties. Yeah, well, I I, uh, I think we do a decent job here of trying to avoid that. And we are just discussing it from the perspective of you know possible outcomes, how it can affect the economy and thus the market. Um, oh, yeah, d- definitely. But I, I mean, the, the point is that this is where the country is. This is the division that we see in the country. And when you see that kind of division, especially ahead of an election, to me, that suggests political risk, not taking a position one way or the other of which side is to blame here. It just strikes me that you have additional political risk. And you have to ask yourself, you know, if you have a year 2000 Al Gore, George W. Bush type scenario, what happens to the country? It was unpleasant in the year 2000. Uh, under the current political circumstances, it may start to feel like we're coming apart at the seams. It's a frightening issue. Political risk isn't something that we've traditionally thought of being a risk to markets in the United States in quite the same way that we generally thought of the other world, the rest of the world. And here we are in 2020 realizing we're there too. Yeah, it it really is. Uh, it does feel you know different this time in terms of uh, the tension in the air. Uh, maybe that is you know just us being in New York, where I would say you know we are both pretty uh, open-minded guys and. Uh, 
it, it feels like if, if you don't have strong views, what are you doing in, in New York? Uh, so maybe some of that is, is just, you know, where we're located and, and what we see every day. Uh, in my time in Ohio, I did spend some, some time back home and uh, I did notice a more relaxed climate. So um, I, I do think some of it has to do with where we're located and, and just the, the heat in the air here in the city. Yeah. Speaking of heat, uh, interesting stat from uh, Edward Jones. So NASDAQ, obviously, into all-time high tech, uh, territory. Five megacap tech names, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Facebook, and Google, are up on average, talking of heat, 68% since 23 March. Yeah, that's pretty incredible. Are they all at all-time highs? I'm not, I'm not too sure. I, I, I don't know, but several of them are, and if not, they're very near it. Well, look, there's plenty of other companies like that are up even more. So it doesn't really, you know, the 68% number, it, it's flashy and they obviously have accounted for a huge amount of the gains uh, in the market. But, you know, so a lot of things got oversold. Uh, there was a company that I got, you know, a message like, hey, check out this company. Uh, it was a BJ's brew house and it was up at like, you know, 60, something like that before the crash. And it got down to $9. I think it's trading at, you know, like 24, 25. So it's over doubled. It's still not even close to where it was on the high. But the question is, you know, is it coming from an oversold point at the bottom, uh, even though it's it's still not at, at all time highs? And so with those other companies uh, that you mentioned, I think they're, they are mostly up above where they were before the crash. Uh, the question is that March 23rd point that you're talking about. Was that a bridge too far? Yeah, I mean, I would also say that, look, there are always examples of companies that make large moves. But what's striking about these is just the absolute dollar value that we're talking about here. The market cap of those companies combined is absolutely massive. I think three of them are above a trillion dollars right now. This is uh, this is some substantial percentage of the overall index weighting. Uh, and so as a consequence, it's an interesting thing to think about. Yeah, and I know it might be a little tired to the viewers to talk about the indexation and the fact that you know S and P five hundred is you know momentum begets momentum, and and as as things rise in market cap, it, it's just a self reinforcing narrative. But you know that price action that you're talking about, uh, I think perfectly exemplifies it. But you could also argue that it is it is a good example of the market pricing in fundamentals, which is these companies which haven't seen their bottom lines hurt that much, who have these iron fortress balance sheets are where the money is going. Is that an indicator that the market is mispricing things or is that an indicator that the market understands what's important and that there's solvency risk out there and it's not going to be Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, those sorts of companies? Uh, and you know they've shown the ability to adapt quickly. They have the money to adapt to attract talent. Uh, so you know you could say that it's it's a symbol of what's wrong with the market, and I think you could equally say that's a perfect example uh, of the market working well. Yeah, I would probably just say it's a symbol of what's weird with the market, and that's the and that's really the key of everything that we've talked about. I you know it's hard to remember a daily briefing where we've had so many contrary indicators, so many uh, contradictions, and uh, you know it just we feel like we've just bounced back and forth. This whole conversation between on the one hand this. On the other hand, here's something completely opposite. Yeah, you know the, the old one about the the one-handed economists—they don't exist—and um, that that's a little bit of what I'm I'm trying to do here, especially considering you know the week that it is Precious Metals Week, and there will just from having seen the content and knowing who we book, like there's a bullish overtone to it. Um, 
and, and yeah, undertone, I guess undertone is the word, but it's an overtone of bullishness. And so I, I think that it's important to always consider the other hand. Uh, so, you know, th- that's what we did today. And I, I think we did a pretty good job of considering both hands. Wonderful. What, how can I possibly improve upon the perfection of a two-handed economist? A three-handed. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Max. Uh...